Today's All Rise podcast is made possible in part by Joseph Krauske, attorney at law based in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome once again to All Rise, true stories from around the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. That lady is my good friend, Diane Godfrey. I'm Jordan Rich, local Boston area broadcaster and podcaster, and I really enjoy sitting down with Diane, meeting some of her amazing guests, and talking with her about cases. Now, before we get to today's case, Diane welcomes your comments, your questions. If you have a particular case you'd like us to talk about, please email her, allrisediane at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear your reviews. Again, allrisediane at gmail.com. Jordan's right. We would love, love, love to hear from you. And today we examine a very cold case, Diane. As cold as it gets, icy cold. 30 years icy cold. But thanks to the professionalism of the Boston Police Department, they solved this case. So, Diane, first of all, we're talking about a cold case. Define cold case. Can you do that for me? Sure. It is a case that is unsolved, and the Boston police and the state police went as far as they could with their investigation, and they hit a dead end, and it's, quote-unquote, becomes a cold case. Yeah, there's no warm clue to uh, to solve it. And I guess there's a cold case squad in the BPD. There the actually is, yeah. exactly. And they're the ones that reopened this case. So let's talk about it. It's fascinating, and uh, it's sad at the same time, but it's the Dora Brimage case. Let's background it for our listeners. Yes, it was a murder that occurred in Boston, Massachusetts, on the evening of September 6, 1987, into the morning of September 7th, which was Labor Day, mm-hmm. 1987. Mm-hmm. And her body was, she was last seen alive the night of September 6th, leaving a birthday party. And she was discovered by construction workers the next morning on a construction site two miles from where she was last seen. You know, it's important to remember the victim. So I think I'd love to know more about her before we get into the case. Who was Dora Brimage? Well, by all accounts, she seemed to me to be a lovely young lady. She was 19 years old. She sang in her church. She sang gospel music. And she hoped to become a nurse mm-hmm. someday. She hadn't really even begun to live her adult life. She just becomes an adult, and and her life was violently snuffed out. Yes. She's an African-American in Boston at the time. Yes. Okay. All right. So what were the circumstances at the time that the police were checking out? Obviously, it went cold, but what was going on back then? I mean, what was the scene of the murder? And, and Yes. Um, She was actually – it was in a housing project – and she went to a birthday party for mm-hmm. a friend, and they actually had it on the roof deck of a building. And quite a few people were there. They were all having a great time. And I'm thinking back of one of the main witnesses in the case who observed the comings and goings of the party. She was an older woman, not old, but older than the party goers. And she somehow... Her nephew came upstairs and said that her grandson, who was three years old, was at the party. And she didn't like the idea of that. So she went downstairs in her building and was outside of her building. 
and she had somebody or other go up to the party and retrieve this kid. Mm-hmm. She's like, he doesn't belong up there. Mm. So she sat outside and observed people going to the party and leaving. The party started, it wasn't that short, it was a short party. It started around 7 at night. You know, it was still daylight out mm-hmm. then. And the party was over like two hours later. What part of the city, for those listening, if they either know it or not, will explain where? Well, in the testimony, and I do remember going there, and it was what is now behind the current-day Boston Police Headquarters at Schroeder Plaza. Okay, that's uh, very well known to people who live in the city. So when you say, by the way, when you say go there, let's explain because we're jumping ahead. Yes. But you were doing your job as court reporter, and often they take the jury and others to the the scene. Yes. All all the time. We get in a big bus. The bus is too big. Why they order a big bus, I don't know. They should have a smaller bus. But we all climb on this bus— and the court officers are there. The jurors sit in the back, and the staff sits in the front with the judge. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's law clerks that come along. Um, and the court, the main court officer, like the head court officer, will have this I forget the word it's called. It's like a long stick. It has the Commonwealth seal on it. Oh, yeah. yeah the name escapes it. me right now. And he walks with it, you know. And the Boston police escort us. The front of the bus and the back of the bus, we get an escort through the city of Boston, and we go to – we went to the scene where she was last seen. Mm -hmm. Then we went over to the construction site two miles away where her body was found. We also went to the spot where she exited a vehicle and was supposedly walking into this bar called Joe Jaguar's. Question, does a judge also go on the Absolutely. Check? Okay. Absolutely, yes. Good. Um, the judge kind of oversees and doesn't say much. There's no testimony ever giving, given at a, at a view. But it's quite the sight to see. I mean, you're in your neighborhood and this huge bus and all these police cars show up. All these detectives jump out. A court officer jumps out, a jury and all these people milling around. And... People come out of their homes curiously and like form a mm. kind of a circle around us and just gawk at us, trying to yeah, figure because out. it's it's so unusual and yet it's, crazy. it's part of your job and part of your routine. Um, thanks for jumping ahead to a little exposition on that. I'd like to fill in some blanks for myself and others. Let's go back though at the scene of the crime, at the scene of the the victim's discovery. What was the cause of death? Did they have a cause of death at the time? She had been beaten, strangled, and sexually assaulted. Wow. She was absolutely so mutilated, almost beyond recognition. Mm. She had been beaten with a shovel, which was found next to her body. And I guess the metal part of the shovel, a piece of it was missing. She was found on a dirty piece of sheetrock in a construction site. It sounds like a a crime of intense anger, violence, and obviously violence, but intense anger at an individual. Um, I I know we're going to find out more as we go through this interview today. Yes. But what a horrific end. So explain what happens. The police are investigating and no suspects at the time, do you know? Well, they interviewed everybody they could. Mm -hmm. And um, according to this woman that went downstairs to get her grandson. Mm-hmm. You know, she wanted to retrieve her grandson. She observed when the party was kind of, you know, closing right, down. Right. She observed 
Dora Brimage leaning against a vehicle. I guess they're all young, you know, and there were different cars parked there and like, where are we going to go now? And they were going to go to different bars and kind of party. Sure, sure. So Dora Brimage had asked somebody for a ride. And these two brothers, James Page and Iris Page, said, we'll give you a ride. Another man stepped in and said, no, I'll give you a ride. And there were accounts by two witnesses that this uh, this James Page adamantly said, no, I'm going to give her a ride. My brother and I are going to give her a ride. Very forcefully mm-hmm. said that. So she climbs into the front seat of Iris Page's vehicle and testimony came from the two witnesses that James Page jumped in the back seat. And I think there was testimony someone by the name of Chico, who was now deceased, also went into the back seat of the car. Mm. And off they go. But the girl whose birthday party it was, her name was Laura Harrison, I believe. Laura Harrison? She said that when she was driving away from the party, the vehicle containing... You know, the two Page brothers and Chico and Dora were in front of her. And I guess she was in the second car and she caught a red light, lost sight of them. But when she caught up to them, when the light turned green, she saw Dora Brimage exit Iris's car and walk across the street. She assumed that Dora was going into Joe Jaguars. That's the last she was seen. Wow. So it's it's. I'm not a police officer. I've watched enough TV to be dangerous. <laughs> so we're talking about really nothing but a circumstantial piece of evidence. At that time, At absolutely. That time. Absolutely. And there were a lot of people around, you know. So they're they're interviewing everybody at the party, and I'm sure the first thing that you think about as an investigator is, is, is it somebody that she knew? It, it, did she go willingly? And she exactly. went into that car. So it goes on and on. And uh, do you know when it becomes, quote unquote, a cold case? Is there a particular amount of time before they sort of put it in the back burner? I'm not really sure. But I think it was pretty quickly because they just didn't have anything they could go on. They just didn't. They just found her. Mm. And... The way she was found was the next morning, September 7th, Labor Day, two Boston police officers were in a a cruiser. We call it a cruiser. I don't know if everyone else does in other parts of the country. And they were flagged down by a man wearing obvious – that. what is the name of those? Carhartt? Cargo pants? No, Carhartt, that that brand name. They're, you know, construction attire. Oh, okay. And he was – crazily on the side of the road with, you know, stop, stop. Oh, this is the construction worker who discovered this. Yes, and his name was, I think, Israel. And he said to the police, my brothers and I were working on this site. We just arrived for work and we found this body. We found this body. And he led the police into this parking lot. They went in the back door. Actually, the door was just a piece of plywood. And they went into like a storefront that was being renovated. And there she was. Mm. It's always fascinating to think how someone could be killed and their body is not discovered for how many years, roughly, in this case, 30? Oh, no. Her body was found right away the next day. Oh, no, no. Okay. Let me back up. I'm sorry. I'm mixing up my questions. Okay. Let me ask a new question. Sorry about that. So the next day, the body is discovered. Now, this is roughly 30 years ago. So DNA tracing was if anything, just in its infancy, right? Right. According to what I remember and what I read, there was some sort of testing, but not to the 
degree of today. Mm-hmm. Nowhere near. And that's why they were unable, but they were smart enough. They got the medical examiner, and there was a forensic technician that accompanied the medical examiner to the scene of the crime, and they took extensive swabs. So they had, they had evidence that was just on hold until that's right. something happens, that's technology right. comes along. So let's, let's bring it up to the closer time, to the present. Uh-huh. What was the break in the case? Do you have a sense of that? Yes. The Boston police received a federal grant to open cold cases. And as you said, you referred to the Boston police have a cold case squad. Hmm. And there was an officer, I think his name was Dugan. Mm-hmm. And he decided that it was a viable case because of the slides. I guess the um, the sheetrock, that the dirty piece of sheetrock she was found on, her clothing, she was found without her clothing on. Her shirt was up around her mm-hmm. torso. She had one sock on. I remember they said it was a pink sock. I don't know why I remember that. And her pants, her pants were down. Her underwear was around the bottom of her leg. Mm-hmm. But you know what's funny? This was a DNA case. There were a lot of um, forensic people that, you know, came on the stand. And it was important for the timeline of when she died because she they theorized that she never stood up again after she was attacked because the sperm inside her body was intact. And should she stood up, there would have been some leakage of mm. it. And another thing was they say, well, one of the— um, experts opined, and he said that it, after 24 hours, the tail of sperm comes off, and the tails were still on the sperm. So she had been killed pretty close to mm. when they found her. Really uh, horrific. No murder is is pleasant, of course, but this sounds terribly horrific. So for 30 or so years, her family's left in the void. Yes, and she, you know she had she was one of nine children. Mm. And, um, you know, they just – I don't want to say forgot about it because, I mean, this was a life-changing, well, you, horrible you, – You've got to go on with your life at some point, but it's, it's always there. So let's talk about uh, an arrest or uh, someone who's uh, accused of this murder. Who was it at okay. that Okay. They accused, for lack of a better word, James Page – the gentleman that was in the back seat of the vehicle, that 71-year-old Dorothea Robinson, she's the one that came downstairs looking oh. for her grandson. Yes. Now, mind you, James Page, the gentleman that was accused of the crime, is her nephew, and he mm. off and on had previously lived with her. So here he is looking – she is looking at her nephew, James Page, enter a vehicle with Iris Page, another nephew – with Chico and Dora, and they drive away from the party. So... Hmm. Was there evidence, DNA evidence in those slides that it was James? Absolutely. So that's that's the, the reason to arrest James and put him on trial, obviously. Now, interestingly enough, he contends he didn't do it. And you'd think to yourself, well, they have all this DNA evidence. I think they had, they found 15 at different you know, spots, 15 locations and 15 hits of mm-hmm. DNA of James Page on her body. Mm. But, you know, the defense counsel in his closing, he's a great guy, Dan Solomon, good lawyer. He said, 
there was not a sign of James Page anywhere at the scene other than the elephant in the room, the facts that they assessed, nothing else. No hair, no fingerprints, no DNA, no sheet marks, nothing, no footprints. Let me back up and ask you to clarify. He said there was no DNA? I don't know why. I think he meant at the time. Oh, at the time. I'm I assuming see. he, he yeah. meant that. Well. But there is no other evidence. It was just the DNA, which what is a, a big what, thing. What about uh, Iris and Chico? Where, I know Chico's deceased now, but what, what did they have to do with this, if anything? Well, Chico, I think they may have initially you know, um, interviewed him, but he died. I don't know when, so mm-hmm. that was off the table. But the other brother, James's brother Iris, driving the car— Dorothea Robinson, their aunt, who they live with, she was the one that watched all this from in front of the building. She contends that later that night, around 1030, that her nephew Iris came into her apartment. He looked very nervous. And she said, what's the matter? And he said, nothing. Now, I'm not in any way intimating that Iris was guilty or that Iris was ever a a suspect because he was not. And I don't think he had anything to do with it. But I often wonder, did he know something? Did he see something after the fact? The next morning at 5 a.m., she was up getting ready for work. The same nephew, Iris, comes in screaming, crying that um, they had found Dora mm-hmm. dead. Was he uh, accused as an accessory? Was he no, brought no. to bear? But, you know, the the woman that was killed, Dora, had a boyfriend, a longtime boyfriend, and he stepped up to the plate right away. He gave hair samples. He gave DNA. He gave everything. He cooperated. Mm. He was mm. completely exonerated. Mm. So, So let's take it now to the trial where Diane is doing – what you do, which is court reporting and being the professional. What kind of a trial? Was it an emotionally draining affair? I mean, it is 30 years later, and you you said it so well, people are often forgotten. What was the trial like? Well, you know, it's, they, it's funny. The Boston police did give a statement that no person is ever forgotten. Mm -hmm. And that rings true because they resurrected the case and they solved it. But um, he was indicted for one indictment, murder by strangling or beating one Dora Brimage to her death on or about September 7th, 1987. Um, So the trial went nine days and miraculously, we picked a jury in two days for murder, which is lightning speed. That is fast. It's usually like five days. I've seen six and seven, but that's not – that's just bad luck. P- point of order, there's no statute of limitations on murder. No. Right. No. We just want to make that point. So he's on trial and he's got a fine lawyer, which he is deserving of. Yeah. And uh, who, was, who was prosecuting that day, do you recall? Craig Anini. Okay. And he had someone with him from the office. I don't remember who – so Dan Solomon had someone with him as well. So the four attorneys. But it was a nine-day trial. The first two days, we ended up picking the jury. And I do remember one thing. And how you remember stuff, right after the opening statements, which are not evidence, before we began with witness number one, somebody in the jury box, a juror, all of a sudden it dawned on her that she knew a witness. And come to find out, she... They called her to sidebar and they questioned her. The judge questioned her. And she said 
that she had been a couple of months before at a Christmas party with her husband and, and met this woman. So in other words, the juror's husband worked with one of the witnesses, mm. but it didn't dawn on her. So we had to let her go, mm. and they let her go, and now we were left with 15 jurors. Now, statutorily, you can't dip below 12. So they always have extra jurors for yeah. reasons like this. Makes sense. We Makes started sense. with 16. On day two, we're down to 15. And, you know, sometimes they're long cases. This was only nine days. That's not a long murder trial. And two mm. days with deliberation, which is also a short time to deliberate. Mm. More with Diane after these words. Attorney Joseph Krauske is based in the Boston, Massachusetts area and serves all of New England. Joe has 43 years of experience handling major personal injury and criminal cases with hands-on attention given to every client. He also specializes in handling cases of OUI, which is operating under the influence, and has experience with many serious and important superior and district court cases. To contact Attorney Joe Krauske, call 508 508- Again, that's 508-587-3701. Email him at krauskylaw.com. That's K-R-O-W-S-K-I-L-A-W.com. It's legal help when you need it. Krauskylaw.com. We are talking about the Dora Brimage murder case and trial, a cold case that finally uh, was resolved roughly 30 years after it happened. And, Diane, uh, the Boston Police Department and police departments in general, when they're dealing with the DNA evidence case in the present day, uh, what's the modus of operandi in solving a case like that? Where, where does the science enter into it? Well, you know, the Boston Police Department has their own lab. But in this instance, they call it in the business a CODIS hit. C-O-D-I-S, it's an acronym. Mm-hmm. It's the FBI Combined DNA Index System. And it matched James Page. James Page had to give a DNA sample to this CODIS databank for an unrelated felony that he had been convicted of. And that's when it hit and they Got so he previously committed a felony. His DNA sample was taken, and through the database, they yes. were able to find the match. Yeah. The technology used to ID him was not available, obviously, in the 80s. But yeah, he was, this, I'm assuming, in his 50s at this point, roughly. He was 51. He was living in Manchester, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So two people that worked in the two officers that worked in the cold case squad drove up to Manchester and arranged for him to be spoken with at they interviewed him at the Manchester Police Department he came in and he was they you know they videoed him and they taped him and he still contended first he said he didn't really know her and then he got a little more specific and said he did know her they had asked him in 87 and asked him in 2015 did you ever have sex with Dora Brimage he said no but you know it's hard to keep your lies straight because in 87 he said he and his brother Iris gave her a ride he said that she was dropped off at Dudley now fast forward to 2015 in Manchester Police Department he said that she was 
um, dropped off in front of Joe Jaguars. Yeah, liars and uh, criminals often are their own worst enemy, thankfully. Yes. Right? Thankfully. Yes. So he, when is he actually arrested for the crime? Shortly after that, he was arrested. He contended he had nothing to do with it, nothing mm. at all. And he, I assume, didn't take the stand. No, he didn't, which is his right. And I think that because the if upon conviction, life without the possibility of parole was in his horizon, that he did go to trial. He didn't take a plea. Mm-hmm. You know, he. I guess he just rolled the dice to see if by some by hook or by crook he could wiggle out of it, which he didn't. But he was convicted, and the woman, his aunt, that had seen him that night. Dorothea Robinson, Robinson yeah. has since moved to South Carolina as her daughter, daughter Angie. They both came back up at the expense of the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't realize how much it costs to prosecute cases, mm. you know, to fly them up, to put them up. It's really a big, you know, it's a drain financially. The, the amount of money it takes to prosecute cases is mind-boggling. Mm. Let's talk about the reaction at the conviction of the family members, whoever was there or whoever was part of it. It's fascinating. You mean at the... at the um, uh, Sentencing, maybe. Oh, at the sentencing hearing. Yes, because on day nine, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. He was not sentenced at that moment. I believe it was the next week that he they had a what they call a sentencing hearing. And in Massachusetts, anybody that wants to can come up to the witness stand and speak with the judge and say, Your Honor, this is like really ruined my family. Throw the book at him. Or, I mean, in this yeah, case, that victims, didn't – they just get their moment. And the, and the judge asked them to direct their comments to the judge. But a lot of times the person on the stand will look at the defendant right in the eye and speak to him or her. Mm. And that's – it doesn't get any more dramatic than was, that, Jordan. I was going to say, and you're right, you're right there, feet away from this situation between uh, parties. Okay, what happened in the case? Okay, so he got convicted. I don't know if I mentioned, this was downtown Boston, Suffolk Superior Courthouse. Mm-hmm. It was tried before Judge Christopher Muse. At the sentencing hearing, one of her sisters got on the stand, and it was very, you know, heart-wrenching when she spoke. Because she said for years she would walk with her head down. She would never put her head up. Her mother sheltered her from the truth about the details of what happened to her. She said that Dora used to call her baby. And she had a fear because of this. She lacked trust for any people around her. Um, She's nervous wherever she goes. It had such a a far-reaching negative effect on this poor sister. Mm. She said her other sisters suffer, quote-unquote, residue from the pain my family has endured for many years. At first, she couldn't even look at pictures of her sister. Um, She said the last couple of weeks now, you know, she meant like the trial, was good closure. Um, Now the the photos are always going to be embedded in her brain, you know, in her mind. So... Then her other sister got on, Angie Brimage. Now, Angie Brimage was the first witness. She was the one that got on the stand and identified her sister in front of the jury. They showed a photo of her sister. Mm -hmm. And it was just heartbreaking. She said they were roommates, and she was like her teacher. 
you know, she and Dora showed her things in life, gave her an idea of what life was going to be like. Um, you know, it was just, um, I don't know. She said she stopped trusting people. She was shy. She said, I'm 48 years old and I'm still shy. I don't even know how to look at men in the eye. I don't even know how I feel. I mean, it's bad. Mm. The, the emotional train wreck. But the DNA doesn't lie. And there was one day, I think day five of trial, we had five separate witnesses. They were all like forensic people. And the whole thing pointed to James Page. You've seen a lot of these uh, victim statements. You've been in court so many a times in the middle of a murder trial at the conclusion of one. You said there's something kind of special about this one that uh, took a lot of notice on your part. Yes, and that's one of the reasons I plucked it out of my plethora of murders, because the mother of Dora Brimage, she wasn't well. She barely could make her way up to the stand. She was not well. She could barely ambulate. She said that she had medical problems. That poor woman ended up forgiving him in the courtroom. She looked at him and addressed him and forgave him. Mm. Now, I have seen that before, but not often. That's uh, very dramatic. And it says a lot about that individual, that mother. Now, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Had she been on that stand right after the murder, like a year or two after, would she still have forgiven him? Or did she see things in a different light yeah, the after old 30 years? axiom that time heals right. wounds. Not sure. Not, not sure at all. She wasn't giving him a pass by any means. I don't know that. I, mm -hmm. I certainly don't agree that she gave – it wasn't that that kind of a statement. But she absolutely forgave him. Mm. And, you know, from his – I do remember his body language. He still contended he didn't kill her. So as far as we know, he's incarcerated and will be the rest of his life? Absolutely. His He was sentenced to life without the possibility of – of parole. So he's done. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time that it finally came to the sentencing, he had been incarcerated for four and a half years already. So this was uh, a bad dude. Certainly he did some horrible things, but nothing compares to what he did apparently to this poor woman. Yes, because the mother here, I have her part of her statement, and she said, 26 years waiting on this to happen, and I forgive him even though he did this to my firstborn. I just want him to know that because I know if I forgive him, God will forgive me. So all said, I know Dora is at peace now. It's been a long time before her peace come, but it came, and I'm glad that justice was done. I just don't have too much else to say. Those are powerful words. And when you think about it, no matter what your religious bent is, you, you can understand that, that not knowing and not understanding what actually happened uh, leaves a lot of holes in everyone's life. Absolutely, Jordan. And, you know, as soon as she said, I don't have too much to, else to say, the judge looked at her and said, Ms. Brimage, you said it all. And then she said... It came from my heart and nowhere else. You know, I couldn't. For a long time, I've been wanting to say this. We've got closure now. That's all we needed was closure. Closure for the family, and here is closure. Oh, I'm so happy. You just don't mm. know. Mm. And I hope he knows I'm happy. I forgive you. 
Hmm, so dramatic. And uh, just curious if the Boston police cold case squad was represented in the in the courtroom. Do you recall if they were there? Yes, I think the officer's name was Dugan, mm-hmm. and he had traveled with a partner, as I said, up to Manchester, New Hampshire. I remember he was being um, questioned of why a case goes cold, and he was saying that sometimes there aren't cooperating witnesses, sometimes there's no evidence at all. I mean, there, you know, people but, but die. But gosh, this is so encouraging to to know, as you said, that no case is ever left to just dangle. It's 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 still there, and these police officers and and people in the justice system still want to see it through. Yes, and Don Dan Conley, the DA, you know, mm. was you know instrumental also in bringing this. Dora Brimage, a case that is known to some, but now known to a whole lot more because of this podcast. And in a way, we're uh, celebrating closure ourselves by telling the story. Yes, here it is here. Detective Sergeant Dugan. He's actually a pretty good cop, all in all. And he said that, that Paige contended he never had sex with Dora Brimage. Hmm. Go figure. Go figure. DNA doesn't lie. Well, Diane, another amazing uh, recap of a case from someone who was right there in the courtroom. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for listening. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.